Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kao and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. With me, as always, is Cynthia Kao. Cynthia, welcome back. Hey, hey. Has it only been a week since I've seen you? Uh, no, it's <laughs> been a couple weeks. But you weren't here you last feel- week either, too. So the last episode oh, that, I had to do... Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. When we miss each other, it just feels like an eon has gone by. <laughs> and plus, I mean, the pandemic, everything, like, just kind of, you know, makes everything go really, really slow. For sure. Yeah. Well, if you're first, if this is the first time you're hearing us, welcome. We are excited you're here. Every episode, we talk to incredible people that are founders that have one extra thing in their resume, and that is service to our country. And I'm absolutely thrilled because we have a fellow Navy vet, Richard Brion from Revolution Agriculture. Welcome to the program, sir. All right. That sounds good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're excited you're here. Uh, Cynthia knows anytime we have a Navy vet, I'm I'm so tickled pink because uh, I was in the Navy as well. Uh, talk a little bit about why the Navy? What 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 motivated you to get into the military? Well, you know, since uh, service branches are always giving each other grief, I have to say that you just gave so many people so much uh, fodder against us Navy people by saying <laughs> you think about it. But um, so as far as uh, Navy goes, it was just one of those things. I was at a high school that had a uh, Naval ROTC program. My family was um, pretty much all different kinds of branches. And the one thing that I wanted to do was get off of the Kitsap Peninsula and go see some of the world because it was always something I wanted to do. And the Navy seemed like it was the most likely place to be able to see the coolest stuff. But yeah. Yeah. You definitely can see the world. I, I did three years and uh, saw 30 different countries. So it's definitely one of those traveling uh, branches, right? What What did you end up doing when you got in? Uh, I ended up in the uh, CT program or the cryptology program, uh, specifically around collections. So intelligence collection, mostly in um, signals intelligence and open source type stuff. Okay. Okay. Nice. And when you got to boot camp, I'm, I'm assuming you went to Great Lakes, which is an amazing place to go any time of the year. I highly recommend if you want to find a place to go, go to Great Lakes, right? Yeah, especially uh, during uh, middle of July as a good point to show up for your first time of ever being there. It's a perfect uh, set of weather circumstances for walking around all day outside. I, I, you know, I went in the middle of January, so I don't know. I don't know which one's better. I dealt with, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. negative 40 degree with with the wind chills, so I don't know. I, I I think either of the extremes is pretty bad in Chicago. We, <laughs> Chicago. We could yeah, I, I think we both probably should have learned how to plan that better. <laughs> I was going to say, can they do a preview tour, you know, and, and I, I think we should like teach all these young cadets to do a little preview tour right. and then decide from there what month, <laughs> yeah. what branch. Yeah. The, the transition seasons, right? Spring, fall, good times to go. Yeah. So when yeah. when you uh when you got into boot camp, what if anything surprised you about it? Um, I wouldn't say too much of 
any of it surprised me, so to speak, because again, I had a long family history of guys being in at different times. Um, so I kind of had something of knowledge there. And then I did go through a Naval ROTC program where mm-hmm. oddly enough, during my junior year, there was a high school ROTC set of national games or whatever, where it was actually held at Great Lakes. Um, they're on uh, the uh, installation for basic training. So it was, I got to see a little bit of what was going on. So I got a little lucky there. Nice. I still went during a better weather period of time though. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. When you, when you got out to the fleet, did you, were you deployed on, on a ship being crypto? I would imagine you could do it wherever, but were you actually deployed on, on vessels? I was uh, stationed out of the um, direct support shop for uh, base in Fort Gordon. Uh, which is a deployment, well, was a deployment shop. I don't know what they did with it now because the Navy changed the um, command activity that I was involved in to a new name. I can't even remember what they changed it to. And they've reassigned some of the ways that those deployment shops work. So I'm not sure what became of the little Naval Security Group activity command I was stationed out of at Fort Gordon. Hmm. So, so were you hi- fresh out of high school when you enlisted? Uh, I was. I, yeah, so I was high school and then it was a high school ROTC program. So junior ROTC program, okay. which gave me a bump in my enlistment base as well. Then a pl- other a couple other things. But I should have listened to the uh, retired captain and the retired chief uh, warrant for hmm. that told me I should have went to college and into ROTC and I would have enjoyed myself a little bit better. I loved what I did, but I think they had a point. There probably was a little bit of a better side of the coin if I would have went officer, but you know, here we are anyway. Yeah. Did when you, so how long did you stay in? So I stayed in, it worked out to be like four years and 39 or 45 days or something. I was on a uh, 12 month extension waiting for some uh, post 9-11 orders to go from being um, temporary duty assignment type of orders to full billets. And so I signed a 12 month extension with a guarantee of a six year enlistment contract for those orders. And then like 39 days after my extension started, the Navy came back and said, hey, your Creo one job now is a Creo three job. So change or get out. I'm like, I love when they do that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, that was like, what are my options? They're like, you can be a linguist. I was like, no. Oh, wow. (laughs) It seems like that would have meant you had to retrain though, right? You had to go back to uh, a school and retrain. Yeah. They would have sent me 18 ish months back to defense language Institute in California, which depending and Maybe depending on the language that I would have got tasked with, it would have been shorter or different. But the when it comes to being a linguist, it's kind of like what State Department does to their um, brand new foreign services officers. Mm-hmm. They have you take an aptitude for laning, uh, laning, aptitude for language training test. And then they decide to put you in the one that is closest to your tested aptitude and best fits their needs. So it could have been Arabic, Persian, 
anything like that. It's not like I could have picked a cool one that says, Hey, I want to learn, you know, Mandarin or something and go someplace cool. You kind of get stuck with what they give you. And then maybe linguists have a propensity to spend all of their time in windowless buildings or in windowless areas of ships with headphones on and just listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. just really didn't sound like my speed. Mm. When you decided this was going to be it, like, like, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to leave. What, what was your mindset? Like, what were you hoping the service would help you prepare for as you got out? I didn't have a clue. Just, I was <laughs> hoping that it would prepare me to be an adult, I guess, um, yeah. that could function independently on my own. Um, it, yeah, I didn't really have much of a thought on what would come after when I joined the service. I figured I would go see where it took me. And my plan was at the time that I enlisted, we'll see how long I stay in based on how long or how well I'm enjoying it at that time. So um, I was enjoying myself to the point where I wanted to take on the next set of orders because they seem cool. And then when they gave me the um, this or else, I then did what one of my chiefs taught me at the time, which was to look for how to turn whatever the situation is into something better. And I just kind of went looking and best laid plans though. didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So when you got out, what did you end up doing? Uh, so um, first thing I ended up doing was absolutely nothing um, by accident. Again, um, I had a job lined up with a government contractor called JV management which I believe has been purchased now at this point, but they had a analyst type role, um, two billets, one either where I was already at or one in Kenya, Hawaii. I opted for the Kenya, Hawaii one and about three days before my last day. So there was really no way to change my mind. The government canceled the billets on that contract. So that job that I had walking out, basically doing something similar to what I was doing, making way more money, in Hawaii no longer existed. So I kind of bummed around Georgia and parts of Florida where I had friends for a couple months before I headed out to uh, um, stay with my grandparents in Arizona for a bit. Wow. And I, I did the same thing when I got out, I wasn't, I, so I went in because I wanted to get college money. Right. And, but when I got out, I ended up in Tennessee. I grew up in the Bay area, but I, I ended up going to Tennessee for a year to go work for a moving company. A friend of mine that I went to high school with, she's like, just come here and work for my dad, which ended up being a complete nightmare. But um, I think that's a, a pretty common story. Like there are a subset of people that get out and they're just like, I'm going to do this, I guess. Question it's super mark? common. Right. I mean, my oldest son, when he got out of the army, he was bumping around New- state of New York and he ended up working um on a Mennonite farm in rural Pennsylvania. Interesting. <laughs> so he learned to sew his own clothes and, you know, he came back listening to Christian and country music and uh, wow. knowing how to like manage turkeys. It was just, I and mean, we grew up in the big city. So yeah. um, it was just funny to see him do that. And I think just manual labor made him, a humble person, but eventually he got back to the medical field and now he's a first responder. But you know, it, for a little while, he's like, I don't want to be told what to do whatsoever. Right. So. Right. Yeah, me, I didn't mind. I, 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 
had it all nice and laid out. I basically said, okay, here's my options. Here's when I have to figure it out. I went because we were at a, um, it, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's a security operations center. So we were side by side all the time on active duty with contracting companies and everything else. I had friends. I said, hey, here's my, here's what's happening. They helped me get, they're like, hey, we got the job, went through, got all the interview, had the offer. They then had the billet come up in Kenya and was like, would you like that one instead? I said, sure. So I had a plan. My plan wasn't to bum it until you know, the job just wasn't there when I walked out. So I was like, okay. So kind of, like I said, bummed it around, moved out to Arizona, stayed with my grandparents. My grandfather was a World War II vet and hung out until one day Blackwater called. And then that kind of just changed the trajectory of everything from that point. So it was, you know, you're barely 20 something and company calls offering you that kind of money to do pretty much exactly what you were doing before just overseas. And you're like, okay, I'm making basically a month's worth of salary per day. So here we go. Wow. And what did you end up, I, I don't know how much you could say about it, but how much, what were you doing for Blackwater at, at that point? So they, at the time they, that particular contract was a counter narcotics related contract where the DOD was supporting um, drug enforcement administration efforts to create a counter narcotics program in Afghanistan. Mm. And so they were training local police and all of that interesting stuff. And the idea was that it's a war zone. DEA is not used to operating war zones. So DOD wanted uh, basically former military support that understood the environment. So my job was just simple intelligence and logistics support. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be purely intelligence, but that's part of my story is I kind of learned from a couple of people to just kind of fill in where I could and learn the skills. And I became the guy that could not just source information, but could source just about anything we needed or wanted. So that's kind of what I ended up doing was just supporting that training program across the number of ways that they needed at the time. And then it just kept progressively moving from to different companies and different parts of either Iraq or Afghanistan, or even part of Japan. And it just kind of went from there. You just, I took every time there was something offered, I took what was offered and then tried to leverage it into something better and just kept following those threads wherever they went. So how long altogether did you spend as a government contractor? So that um, my first deployment with them was 2005. My last combat was 2007. Then I became more of a business development guy for government contractors, helping them win contracts. That lasted until about... Eh, about 2000, well, it actually pretty much until 2018 or so. 2017 and 2018, I ended up back on the ground in Afghanistan helping a company work out some contractual issues with State Department. And mm-hmm. so, and then even every now and then, I still get an occasional company that remembers me to say, hey, can you help us out with something? So, even earlier uh, or in mid 2020, I did a small project for another company. Wow. So, that's amazing. That's a lot of tours. Yeah. What was it? What was the difference? Do you think, as far as 
feeling you know, you were you're obviously a civilian contractor in Afghanistan. Did you didn't really get that experience as a military person, right? You weren't there on a military capacity. So you really don't have a way to compare the two. But when you were out there, what difference did you feel being a contractor versus somebody, you know, in a military capacity there? So it was an interesting perspective. So yeah, I didn't, I did uh, intelligence support um, while on active duty, but what I was doing wasn't anything like what I was doing out there. So um, and it was something the way that it feel or the way that it felt changed over time. It started out to where in the earlier days, there was more like we were all working together on the same team for the same goals. Um, we were uh, supporting each other where we could. Um, I would I had all of the accesses to basically go in and out of any of the facilities that we needed. We were cross sharing. We were deconflicting it all felt like you were just one unit of the larger thing there. There was still some level of separation though, in terms of you did know for sure at times that if everything went sideways, we were on our own. So even though on paper, it said that we were part of the evacuation plan for the country, if it ever went down, we kind of knew that wasn't true. So we had our own plans on what to do if everything went sideways. So that was unique. And then slowly over time, rules of engagement changed. Favorability of contractors started to become less and less favor on a political level. And our support from military started to get less and less, uh, even to the point where when we landed in Baghdad, it was common practice for the Baghdad cash to deprioritize injured contractors, even if their injuries were more severe in favor of injured military people with less severe injuries. So there was a kind of a weird feeling that if things went too bad, the wrong direction, we may not have been as taken care of, or even to the point where by my last combat trip, uh, QRF from the military in the event that we got attacked just wasn't available. We were completely self-reliant on our other teams from our own companies or the other contractor teams from other companies that were stationed in the same places to be the ones that would respond in a QRF type situation. Um, And that, um, like I said, it just progressively got more and more uh, isolated from the rest of the group. We were there, but we weren't really part of them anymore. So we were definitely on our own a lot. I spent uh, maybe the better part of a decade doing um, government work and then moving out of a GS role into government contracting and working for multi, you know, different agencies in different capacities. Um, but definitely my feeling is the last, I think, 10 years or so in particular has changed from this whole one team, one mission to definitely a a divide. And it doesn't matter whether you're prior service, whether you're prior government, as as long as you have that green stripe on your CAC, you are a different animal and you're treated so. And, you know, that's, that's been one of my main shifts to get into entrepreneurship. And I'm wondering if that is what was the, the factor that led you to 
you know, moving into your own, defining your own space and defining your own business? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that was, uh, it, it might've had a, been some level of a catalyst, but it was something that um, I'd noticed for a while. My little brother worked a contract. He's actually is getting ready to move from that contract into a job with Microsoft finally, but he had um, his uh, contracting officer's technical representative essentially had told him at one point that she found it her mission to find every problem that there was with the, with contractors in order to try to get them removed from contracts. Hmm. Essentially, she thought that the government shouldn't be contracting anything out anymore. So it definitely has been a shift in time because when I was at that first job in Afghanistan, Blackwater got the Border Patrol training contract because I had a really good relationship with the guy that held the purse strings. Now that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, they, I don't know, it's just a weird thing, but it did make it to where it became less and less interesting to me to be part of it because there was that stigma that, oh, you're just a contractor like somehow that made us less good at our job or somehow we were less morally acceptable or whatever it was. So it is an interesting feeling. I'm not sure if that ended up how I ended up creating something for myself or as a lot of the guys that know me over time, tell me to my face, even one of our investors now, um, when I had this conversation with him about my brother's Microsoft job is you would suck at that job. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 knowing you, you would suck at basically doing a kind of a butt in the seat kind of role for anybody. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think for me, it was a slow progression over time where more and more people started realizing that I was better and better suited for either doing something myself or consulting level work where I came in and would do something and then I would just leave or you just keep using me as a very specific tool and don't expect me to be part of your day-to-day -day nonsense. So yeah. Rebels. Yeah, I over time for that. You know, that it doesn't get any better in the private sector. I was a contractor at Google for a while and on Googleplex, like there is a definite stigma between, you know, you're an employee and you're not. So it doesn't get better in the private sector. And even at Googleplex, the the uh, contractors have different color badges just so that it's more obvious that they're not part of the overall, you know, mission. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's so frustrating. Talk a little bit about how you started to think about starting your own thing. Cause you just said, you know, you're starting to, you know, get to this mindset of, I, I need to either do my own thing or do some consulting. Like talk a little bit about that thought process. So it kind of went pretty much that way. So 2011, I moved from Washington State down to New Mexico to take a executive level role at a government contractor. Um, by technical standards under government speak, they were a small contractor, but by revenues, there's a lot of small businesses that would disagree with their revenue being considered small. Um, so it, I went down there, I took that role and I was running all of their business development. And it kind of was this weird position where I was new, but I also wasn't part of the family, so to speak, because it was owned and ran by a father-daughter 
team and a couple of the other uh, long-term employees were long-term employees of the father's other businesses. And so there was a lot of this, you're responsible for this, but then we're going to exclude you from certain things that are key to you being able to do said job. And so I started having, you know, trouble with working in that system. You can't ask me to be responsible for something and then exclude me from knowing what it is that you're asking me to be responsible for. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of started the, that process where it just, the, the fit wasn't there. And then I started, because of what I was doing, there was a lot of people that realized I had significant value. And so the move into a consulting role basically was a seamless transition. I went from working with all of these people, but as a executive of this one company to now working with all these people um, on individual projects to all their different companies. And so it worked out well. I liked the autonomy it gave to a lot of degree. I liked being able to then speak my mind when it came to how well or where things needed to be done or where there were misses that were happening. And so even if, you know, it created tension, I was still able to advise based on what I saw was best without having to worry about pulling punches, so to speak. So it kind of led into that. And I did that for a while and companies kept coming back and then company hired me for this and Around 2016 is when I decided to start really feeling out the what is now Revolution Agriculture, but I was still doing the consulting at the time. So even that became a period I allowed for transition. Mm -hmm. Talk about why this company needed to exist. It's nothing like your background. I mean, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't seem like this is something that was a part of your skill set in your professional career. So why did this need to exist? So that's the one advantage that I've got in my professional career is, and maybe it was because of the type of intelligence work that I did and how that morphed is my skill set realistically is figuring out what needs to exist or what needs to be done and then learning how to do it and then finding other people that can learn with me on how to do these things. So when I was overseas doing the counter-narcotics work and looking at the root cause of a lot of the illicit drug trade out of Afghanistan, it stemmed back to farming. Mm. I mean, that's that was inherent problems with the environment and uh, farming practices and supply chain for that country um, at its very basic. And so how what exists in the current market that could have been used to solve that problem. And then when finding out there wasn't anything quite right, why wasn't it right? And what's the missing pieces? And that's usually what I do best is I find the missing piece and I figure out how to build the missing piece, or I figure out how to get other people that can help me design the missing pieces and then go from there. So the problem with farming was is we needed to figure out how to make more things available year-round anywhere that humans currently or hope to inhabit. And by doing that, we could give people like the Afghan farmers that are growing opium an option to do something else. Um, and so that's kind of where 
all of that came from. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that it seemed that if you were to take what exists and a little finesse and a little bit of tinkering, build the missing piece, you could be onto something. And so it seems that we were. Nice. <laughs> It's interesting because what you do kind of cross um, hybridizes a lot of my work with Department of State. And we, we had a food for peace program, an innovative agriculture program, you know, and a sustainable agriculture program. And, and something that I've learned post-service is, you know, a lot of the countries that are politically unstable or at war, um, they're not able to produce for themselves, right? Or they're in an area where if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, they're not able to produce the food for themselves. So they're all financially insecure, economically dependent on other countries that can take advantage of the situation. And, you know, one of the greatest ways is to like educate those farmers and educate the local um, tribes to find out what are the needs of the community and how can we create economic dependence for them by, like you said, you know, investing in something like agriculture that um, they're probably already invested in just different crops. And um, but there's this whole systemic story that I was not aware of until I started kind of doing my own research into it. It's definitely an interesting uh, field to be in. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's very interesting. It's a huge set of complications that people don't realize. I mean, farming in and of itself isn't as simple as grow food, uh, sell food, make money. For starters, there's policies, there's from your own governments, there's policies on regional governments, there's policies in global governments that oftentimes, even if they have the best intentions, create unintended consequences for people that you don't even see or you don't even realize. And then sometimes, too, there's people just do what they can to get by. And sometimes what they can to get by means that they're growing opium because opium's easy to grow in their environment. And the supply chain was perfectly simple because all they did was grow what grew naturally in their environment that was didn't require a significant amount of investment in equipment or anything else for it to grow. The farming practices didn't have to be super sanitary. So it can be done remotely because the processing from the pure opium into the heroin and everything else uses acids that will eat through car batteries and everything else. So it'll kill anything that is unsanitary to begin with. And then it was just, a, it was a perfect illicit just-in-time supply chain. Somebody else came through and pulled everything all the way from those farmers all the way to the end customers. So they didn't have to worry about anything other than growing it. And it also made them incredibly vulnerable to a lot mm -hmm. of problems, unfortunately. When you are putting this company together, what are some things that you're learning along the way that you've taken away from say the military that you've, that you've learned as you're growing this? That startups in general, but particularly in our space, there is a lot of obstacles and there's a lot of, there's a lot of unnecessary BS at times. And the one that one of the things that I picked up through service and through contracting is there's always a way for it to be done. You just have to have the constitution to kind of take what you have as far as you need to. Um, so you just kind of 
find out what it is that you're running into and just keep going, pulling it through. And eventually you'll find your path on the other side of it, no matter what it is. And also, I mean, resource efficiency, it's not something that a lot of people think of when they think of military. They think we're fairly resource inefficient. However, especially when you work in smaller teams or depending on what type of teams you work with, sometimes the resources just aren't there. So you have to figure out how to make do with what you got. And that has been huge for what we're doing because again, we're doing hardware with software and anybody that knows anything about startups knows that the vast majority of dollars prefer software. Thank you, Andreessen Horowitz for saying that software will lead the world. Um, forgetting that people still need to eat actual food. Right. So um, that's kind of what I've learned over time is, you know, just keep, if you got the right traction and the right knowledge and you've killed the bad ideas fast and you know you're onto something, just keep going one foot in front of the other, no matter how heavy the load and you'll get there one day or <laughs> yeah. one day. So at a base level, let's talk a little bit about Revolution Agriculture. What is it and what do you guys do? So what it is at the highest level is it's soil-focused containerized farming systems that are designed to enable growing of all crop types year-round, no matter where we currently are hoped to inhabit. And what that means is, is that we looked at existing controlled environment systems figured out why they grow such a limited number of things and then figured out how to fix that problem. And then we decided to, that our best path to market and getting these things out there was rather than invest in these large structures that we take this high variety, high yield production unit and put them into small relocatable structures that allow us to put them into the communities that need food. So if you don't have food production local, grocery stores are too far, there's some idle or fallow ground in that community, we can bring one of these in, set it up and start distributing produce year round right to those communities. That's amazing. How did you Do know you, you work were with them? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Do you work with existing community, um, you know, policymakers and, you know, how, how do you establish these, uh, little grow houses or the little farmlets you call them? So basically we have been trying to work with uh, regulatory agencies uh, because I've worked around governments long enough to know that they have long memories and sharp teeth when you decide to try to go around them. But I've also learned why sometimes people believe in the idea of um, ask for forgiveness rather than permission because we've run into a lot of roadblocks that are, in my opinion, unnecessary from uh, government ordinances and whatnot. But there's, again, there's always a way there. We're, so we're operating within the system right now to find existing businesses that already have commercially zoned land that just have extra pieces. And then we can place it on those pieces of property while we try to get the regulatory authorities to um, come around to our thinking of using other land that's not already thought of as a business property. Mm -hmm. And we're having some traction. We're also trying to play off of the new ADU policies that are starting to take hold around the country is, you know, they can 
that we can put housing in a more urban dense area. Why can't we put a farm? Um, so there's some things that we're working through, but again, that's where having been in the military, you get used to, you know, how policy is, you know what the system is. So you just have to work the system and work within the system and where you can, you kind of take advantage of the way that it's written and then where it's not, you figure out how to get people to listen. Mm-hmm. How did you know you were onto something with this? Like, what was the, the, the moment that you went, wow, this this is a business. Like this is more than just a, you know, passing fancy, if you will. It was when the concept of how we would take all of the constraints out of um, growing, because you know, controlled environment agriculture. Everybody thinks of lettuce mostly, mm-hmm. yeah. some herbs, tomatoes, but it was when we put we took my really crummy pencil 3d drawing of what I was thinking and then had my wife turn it into some actually really decent looking computer renderings and then sent it to our, uh, one of our team members in San Francisco and he built it. And the first thing we planted was radishes and the results we got out of those radishes like, Hey, wait a minute. We actually were, we're onto something. Now we need to figure out how to turn it into a, uh, market item and how to actually get it to market in a revenue producing fashion. But it was seeing the results from that first crop that, you know, it was radishes. People don't grow radishes in controlled environments, nor do they come out with the type of food quality that we had in our tests. So if somebody's interested in getting the produce from the farm, how would they sign up to do that? So currently the way that we're working, because we're still in that phase where we did prototype small pilot. Now we're in the process of waiting on delivery of the first scale structure. Mm -hmm. Um, The current way is we're taking people signing up on our website that allows us to see demand pockets where people would like to see these things. But the idea would be that people come to us, they can place their orders and we can either schedule it for a pickup or you can push the order out to your favorite uh, uh, DoorDash, Grubhub or Postmates, which is where we currently have um, agreements to be able to connect farmlets to um, delivery anywhere that we end up placing these. So that's kind of where the process is at right now. People come to us, they then can order once we have produce up and running again, and then either push it out for delivery or come pick it up. Of course, we have that farmlet in your neighborhood. So that's why signing up a little early tells us where, where people are wanting to see these things. Gotcha. Um, So, you know, just from leaving government contracting to starting your business, what's, what are some um, lessons learned or, you know, mistakes that you made that you would advise other people not to do? Um, So one of the things that I had the advantage of, is I was I was a business executive. I have two graduate degrees in business, um, both in uh, business administration and management and also operations and project management. So I have a lot of more broad-based knowledge about some of the ways to manage business and scope that some people in startups end up missing. And I think that you can start a business without them 
but one of the, even seeing one of my other veteran friends that is running a company out of Tampa and I love him to death, but there's been some stumbles that he made um, by not knowing what he doesn't know. For me, my biggest problem has been the trying to over-optimize too early. Startups, just the people that are running them, the people that fund them, they're not used to the pace that I would take in a normal business expansion process. So I want to optimize things. I want to make sure that my resources are as efficient as possible. I get nervous about spending just to spend in order to get to a goal and hope that it works out later. And in some aspects, that's created a slowdown for us. It's created some uh, delays in us getting to market as fast as some other people would hope. So it's you have to play the game. I guess what I I guess what I'm trying to say is you have to remember to play the game based on the rules that exist. You can't uh, you can't go around thinking that you can rewrite all of the rules all the time. So it took me a long time to remember that one from military service, which was play in your space with the rules that you have. Mm-hmm. And then just because it's a hill that you don't want to die on, you can spend all your time trying to change the rules or you just play within the construct of the game that you have. It's great advice. I mean, it's, it's, I think that's, that's really good. And I, hopefully people that are thinking about starting a business heed that where do you hope this goes in the next five to 10 years? Where do you hope this company grows into? So, I mean, the, I've got my five, 10 year plan. I'm also focused on my next 12 to 18 month plan. And first next 12 to 18 months is getting this first unit scale size finished up, honing in on our budget that is also going to be and seeing where the post COVID supply chain problems lands our original budget estimate versus what these things are really going to cost going forward. And then once we get those proof points in place, it's, you know, it's time to raise our seed round. And start really scaling these five years from now, I'd like to see 5,000 of these things across the country at a bare minimum. And for us to start opening up international markets, um, it's ambitious. It's not going to be easy, but then again, I've never liked to do things the easy way. (laughs) You're an entrepreneur. It's not supposed to be easy, right? (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I was talking to our lead investor the other day, I definitely bit off something with this company and the way that we're going hardware, software, plus trying to be the vertical integration of owning the process that scares a lot of people because it's an undertaking and a half. Sometimes um, I read when I read this on LinkedIn the other day, maybe don't go for the unicorn right away, build a niche business that makes you some decent money, learn some things, sell it, then use that money to build a unicorn. Yeah. Maybe that wouldn't have been bad advice for me. I mean, I love what we're doing. I think we've got a great mission, but it takes a lot to try to manage this type of an enterprise because we didn't just try to innovate on one level. We tried to innovate all of the problems in the space all in one model. (laughs) Yeah. But it's good to hear that you have, it sounds like you have investors and people around you that are very supportive and 
willing to do what they can to help you, which is great, which is really important too, by the way. Well, yeah. And it, that's just a story that's hilarious in and of itself. And just a product of continuing to push forward, even when it doesn't look like you should. And then just a random set of timing. Cause that's part of what they say in the startup world is sometimes funding isn't always about product or team. Sometimes it's purely timing. And for us, we just got the funding this year, first quarter. Wow. And the timing of it was, you know, it, thing, looking at it now, it's funny. It, it wasn't such a funny story at the time, but sure. um, it, it works out. There is a group leading it. They're good people. They're driving a lot of what we're doing in a way that is helping me because it was already where I wanted to go. But now I don't have to do it all with just me and the couple of others we had in our core team. We effectively added like almost the equivalent of seven vice presidents to the company with this lead investor group, which was nice. So a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing and a little bit of a lot of grit to just keep going because we knew we had something is kind of, you know, it's kind of how we ended up where we're at right now. This conversation would have been a lot different last year at this time. That's for sure though. (laughs) Where can people find you online? Uh, so revolutionagriculture.com or we've uh, also shortened it to Revo Ag. So revoag.com and .co. Uh, we've got a Facebook and all those fun things. It's linked from the website. I will apologize up front. I am terrible at social media. I think it's a byproduct of being an intelligence guy for so long. <laughs> no. That's why you need a comms person and then they can manage it. <laughs> yeah. And it, it would just, it was one of those things that my first thought when things are happening is not, Ooh, let me snap a photo and come up with something clever to put on <laughs> you know, social media. That's not where my brain goes. It's, I still sometimes hesitate. Like I find it hesitant when my Google alert pops up where my name shows up someplace and I'm on the internet. I'm like, wait yeah. a minute, what happened? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, what, what's going on here? That <laughs> well, habit doesn't well, die. That's so funny. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, that's just GeekWire rehashing an article they already did about us where they're not rehashing it, but they're talking about changes in the space and then mentioning a local Seattle company. And then my Google alert goes off and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Never mind. You know, but the first, that first like two seconds when I get one of those, it still just triggers a little bit of anxiety of, oh no, how, why am I on the internet again? Hopefully it's good. (laughs) So we, we do have pictures of some of the stuff we've been doing, some of the stuff we've been growing. We've been trying to get a little bit better with our lead investor group on being more available that way. Hopefully it it continues. We shall see. I love it. (laughs) Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. uh, Best of luck to everything you're doing. And and if there's things we could be doing to be helpful, please let us know. No, of course. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. Well, Cynthia. exciting. Yeah. This is a great episode. I, I love this. You know, I love grassroots organizations that, you know, you it's it, you're taking something you're passionate about. You're using your knowledge to transform the way the world eats and thinks. And um, it's really cool. I love it. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find us on StartupRadioNetwork.com. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.